Well, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. I want to conclude in chapter 2, verse 3. Tonight I want us to consider four new commands for new life. Four new commands for new life. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. First Peter chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world. But he was revealed in these last days for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave, pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Four new commands for new living and new life. Uh, Peter has already told us in chapter 1 verse 3 that we are to praise God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for in his great mercy he has given us new birth. This new birth is because of the living hope that we have in the resurrection of Christ. It is because of an inheritance that will never uh, spoil or fade or tarnish. And so we have this new birth. Therefore, there are certain ways that we ought to live in light of the new life that we have in Christ. So in our passage, there are four imperatives. An imperative is a command. It's a, it's a declaration of how we ought to live. So in verse 13, we are told to set our hope. Verses 14 to 21, we are called to be holy. In verses 22 to 25, we are commanded to love one another 
And in chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, we are called to crave Christ. Those are the four imperatives that are planted here in this passage. First, in verse 13, uh, Peter says to set your hope. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. For Peter, hope is not wishful thinking. That's how we use it most of the time. I hope that it stops raining. I hope to get a good report at the doctor. I hope to pass my test. I hope to win the basketball game. There's a certain sense of uncertainty when we use the word hope. But in the biblical language, hope is a calm, blessed assurance. It is a calm, confidence, assurance in God who is the giver of all good and perfect things. For we declare that my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and his, uh, Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So because of this new birth, we have to set our hope fully on the grace given when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now let me ask you, when is that? When is Jesus Christ to be revealed? Peter speaks of this as a future event. Now he writes this after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So there's only one thing that Peter can have in mind when he speaks about Jesus being fully revealed and that has to be his second coming. And so we look forward, we set our hope, we set our gaze, not on the prospect, but on the reality of the second coming. I know it's been 2,000 years. Some people say it's been so long it's never going to happen. But just because it's been a long time doesn't mean it's not going to happen. We are to set our gaze on the reality that one day God the Father is going to say to God the Son, go get your bride. And Jesus will stand up and he will split the eastern sky. He will descend. He will rescue, rapture the church. We believe in this. We set our hope upon this. For we know that our faith is not in vain. Our faith is in a reality that one day Jesus will come and get us. Now we know this uh, parousia, this, this second coming of Christ is a reality. And we know that many of our brothers and sisters who have gone on to be with the Lord, I, I contend to you tonight that Jesus personally came to rescue them. When Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go and prepare a place for you, and then I will come back and get you. And so when Jesus comes at a brother or sister's deathbed, I think that Jesus is literally coming, and, and that is his appearing to them. But we do know that one day on the cosmic calendar, there will come a time when in a very cosmic scope and scale, Jesus will descend, and the church will be rescued and raptured from this world. Peter is looking forward to this. His hope is set upon this. And sometimes it's hard to see. I get it. I understand. Let me give you a quick little analogy. When we were in New York City, one of the things that NISM, the New York School of Urban Ministry, encouraged us to do, they said, when you go to Times Square, your gaze is going to be lifted up and all the lights and all the screens, but just lower your gaze just a little bit. When you lower your gaze just a little bit, you'll see homeless people in front of you to the left of you and to the right of you. You don't see them because your gaze is not upon them. You get into Times Square, your gaze looks up 
and you're just enamored with all the glitz and glamour that goes on in the bright lights of New York City. But you just lower your gaze just a little bit and you'll see people that are suffering. In an opposite way, what Peter is saying is that sometimes we have our gaze so earthbound. We're looking at everything that's going on around us and in our world and all the problems and all the predicaments and all the scenarios and all the difficulties and all the diseases and all the disappointment and all the tragedy. And we look around and we say, it is hopeless. There, there, there's no end in sight. What Peter is saying is just lift your gaze just a little bit. Because if you lift your gaze, you'll, you'll, you'll be reminded that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in the tragedy and turmoil of this world. Our hope is in the reality that Jesus will one day be revealed fully. And what we know by faith, we will then know by sight. Our hope is explicitly placed upon the reality that Jesus is coming back. And so because of this new birth that we have in Christ, we set our hope fully on the grace given when Jesus Christ is revealed. But how do you do that? In a real practical way, how do you set your gaze? How do you set your hope upon Christ? Well, there are two participles right there in verse 13. Participles are just little phrases that, that Peter uses to show us how we go about setting our hope. Number one, prepare your mind for action. Number two, be self-controlled. Now, most of us in our English translation, we read those and it looks kind of like another imperative. It looks like another command. But really in the Greek language, they're, they're participles. And so it says that we are to pre be preparing our minds for action. That phrase Prepare your minds for action literally means gird the loins of your mind. That's literally how the text reads. Gird the loins of your mind. Now, to gird your loins is the image of tucking a tunic. Peter's going back into the Old Testament in Exodus when they ate the Passover in haste. And the Lord gave them instructions to, to uh, gird their loins, to, to tuck their tunic in, uh, to, to tuck it so that they could have free motion of their little legs as they were running out of their Egyptian captivity because they didn't want to be impeded in any way. And so here what Peter is saying is that we have to um, prepare our minds for action. We have to gird the loins of your mind. You have to train your stinking thinking. You have to tuck the tunic. You have to be prepared. You have to be ready to move quickly in haste. We are to, and according to Colossians chapter 3, we are to set our minds on things above. Philippians says we are to have the mindset or the attitude of Christ. In Romans chapter 12, we are told, beginning in verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Something tells me this doesn't come naturally, nor does it come easily. That somehow we have to train our mind to think on Christ. Somehow we have to train our mind to think on the reality of the second coming. Because if we don't train ourselves to do this, if we don't gird out the loins of our mind, if we do not do it intentionally, then we'll get distracted with everything else going on in the world. Anybody else ever get distracted? I get distracted by all the things, and many times they're good things. It's not always the bad things that distract me. Sometimes it's the very good things that distract me. But if I'm not careful, my mind can slip off of the Savior. So I'm not thinking about the reality that he's coming. I can't think about the reality that my hope is squarely placed in him. So we prepare our minds for action. Uh, if, if 
If Peter was a coach, he would say, get your mind in the game. If he was a boss, he would say, roll up your sleeves, let's get to work. This is Peter encouraging the churches that have been scattered because of persecution. Think clearly about Christ. So this is how we set our hope upon him. We think upon him. Second, he says, be self-controlled. That word self-controlled means be restrained. Avoid excess in passion, rashness, and confusion. The pagan life, then and now, is unrestrained impulses. Stop and think about it. To live like the world, to act like a pagan, is to be unrestrained in your impulses. To be unrestrained in passion. To be unrestrained in your thinking. To be unrestrained in your rashness. Remember what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, that the inclination towards temptation is both sudden and fierce? That when we give way to temptation, and temptation comes at us in a very sudden way, in a very fierce way, we live an unrestrained life, an undisciplined life. Even for the believer, we become undisciplined, unglued, unhinged, and sin results. I don't have to ask for a show of hands. I don't have to ask for testimony. I know it to be true. It's true in my life. It's true in your life. We become unrestrained and unhinged. So here, Peter says, be self-controlled. When you are self-controlled, you are setting your hope upon Christ. So because of this new life you have in Jesus, based upon his death, burial, and resurrection, you have new life. And first and foremost, Peter says, set your hope on the reality that Jesus is coming back. Secondly, be holy. This is verses 14 to 21. It's the longest portion of the passage. He says, beginning of verse 14, that as obedient children, and that's not an oxymoron, but you do know that children have to be taught to obey. You do not have to teach your children to disobey, but you most definitely have to teach your children to obey. You don't have to teach your children the word no. They learn that quickly. You don't have to teach your children the word mine. They learn that quickly. You have to teach them how to share. You have to teach them how to be kind. You have to teach them how to let somebody else go first. You have to teach your children to obey, to do the right thing. So here, Peter is operating under an assumption that you, as the child of God, you're an obedient child of God. As obedient children, children who who love the Lord and obey him, you are holy. The word holy, it does mean set apart, but literally it means to conform one's thinking and behavior to God's character. You remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, take captive every thought. The word captive means arrest. We are to arrest every thought and make it uh, submissive unto the Lord. Holiness is not natural. We are called to be holy, but that doesn't come naturally. It comes after a lot of intentional, prayerful, hard work and dedication. We are called to be holy because God is holy. It is not in our DNA to be selfless and sacrificial. What is in our DNA? To be selfish and sinful. That's our DNA. If it's left up to us, we will be selfish. I I can't be the most selfish person on the planet. My wife and my children could testify. 
It's embarrassing, but it's a reality, and it's true. And what's true for me is also true for you. You can be the most selfish, sinful individual, unwilling to sacrifice. Why? Because you're acting out of your DNA. Our DNA is not to be holy. Our DNA is to be unholy. And even for the saved Christian, the believer, you are always waging war with that old self. And always waging war. The new life and the old life. And in good Henry Blackaby fashion, which one wins? Whichever one you feed. You feed the old self, the old self is going to win. You feed the new self, the new self is going to win. And here Peter says that we are to be holy. Now there is no magical pill that will make you holy. That you take this pill, go to sleep, tomorrow you wake up, hey, I'm holy. I think some people think that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does. I think some people think, once I have the Holy Spirit in my life, I'm holy. Now, you are proclaimed holy, but then you're supposed to act out of that holiness. So, so just because you have the Holy Spirit, it's not that you just kind of, whoop, check out. And you don't have any work or effort to put into it. No, Christianity is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do in my life. Because it requires intentional effort. If you're going to say, you know what, I just don't want to work that hard. Then you are not going to be a Christian. <laughs> you're not going to be a very good one at that. Because holiness is not something where you don't just take a magical pill. You don't just say, Holy Spirit, I've got you now. So, boop, you're in charge and I don't have to worry about anything. No, no. Holiness is an intentional decision that you and I make before a holy God. It takes hard work. It takes prayerful dedication. The deceptiveness of sin remains a threat from one end of the Christian life to the other. So here Peter quotes from Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. In Leviticus, that statement is made four times. Where God says to his people, you be holy because I am holy. You be holy because I am holy. I find it interesting that Peter quotes Leviticus. And by doing so, he is declaring the authoritative nature and the normative activity of the Old Testament in the life of the New Testament believer. By him quoting Leviticus, he is affirming, as, not as if it needed it, but he is affirming the Old Testament is authoritative. It's authoritative in your life and in my life. And in fact, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they do not contradict one another. In the Old Testament, God calls his people to be holy because he is holy. Guess what God says in the New Testament? Be holy because I am holy. His message has not changed. And it doesn't change. He requires in both covenants for his people to be holy. Now why in the world are you trying to be holy? Peter just keeps it real practical. He says, I want to be holy because my father is a judge. <laughs> yeah, my daddy loves me, no doubt about it, he says. My father in heaven, my father loves me. But he says, my father who judges each man's work impartially. My father's a judge. And he evaluates accurately. And he, he evaluates the work of your life, the work of my life, concretely. He, he, he evaluates it as an accurate judge. Our daddy is a judge. And so we are to live as strangers here in reverent fear. Remember what we said last week. 
We can either be a stranger in this world and belong to God, or we can belong in this world and be a stranger to God. So how we live makes a difference. How we live reveals who our daddy is. Either our actions reveal the Holy Father or our actions reveal the father of lies, the devil himself. So our actions really reveal who our father is. And here, Peter says, my daddy, my father is a holy judge. So I want to be holy because he is holy. He does help me. He empowers me. But it's a decision that I have to make on a regular daily basis. I came across this statement this this earlier this morning, and I, I love it. I, I put a star beside it, underlined it in the book that I found it in. The author simply said, and her name was uh, Karen Job. she just simply said, you can't live like hell and expect to arrive in heaven. You can tweet that, right? I mean, you can't live like hell and expect to arrive in heaven. Why? Peter continues, you were redeemed. The word redeemed means purchased. You were bought. And once again, in, in that day, um, a, a servant or a slave was redeemed or purchased. And many times in the religious cult of the Roman world, uh, a slave could be purchased and then that redemption price would be paid to a god or goddess. Peter is keeping this in mind and he's saying, yes, you've been redeemed. In other words, you've been set free, but the ransom price has been paid not to just a god or goddess, but the God of the universe. Therefore, you are free, but you're also a servant. You are free, but you're also a slave. I am a free man, but I'm a slave unto God my Father. So he said, he will say in chapter 2, I believe it's verse 16, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. You've been redeemed. And he says, you're not redeemed with perishable products like silver or gold. No, you were redeemed with the precious, valuable blood of the lamb. A lamb without spot, blemish, or defect. You were purchased, you were redeemed, and the God who purchased you was not Zeus. The goddess uh, who purchased you, or the goddess who purchased you was not Aphrodite. You were not purchased by any Roman ruler. You weren't purchased by any pagan god or goddess. You were purchased by the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're free. Yes, you are free. Free from your past, free from sin. You are free to live, to laugh, to love, to serve, to worship, to pray. You are free. But you're not free to live however you want to. You're not free to sin. You're not free to do whatever you want to and think that a holy God is going to turn a blind eye. You are free and a slave to God Almighty. But friend, can I tell you, I love being a servant of Jesus. I love that Jesus is my master because he's the one that calls the shots and the father son and spirit they love me they love you and so we're indebted unto them we are redeemed we're bought with the precious blood of jesus christ and this jesus peter says was chosen before creation isn't that wonderful 
the, the redemption plan, the redemption story is not something that God the Father had to kind of piece together as things went south in the garden. It's not something that God said, uh-oh, I don't know what to do now. These people that I've created, they've really gone off the rails. I mean, they've really messed up. Now what am I going to do? No, before creation, the Father chose Jesus to be redeemer of you. And according to Ephesians 1, 4, you were chosen in Christ before the very foundation of the world. So the whole plan and scope of redemption was chosen before Genesis 1, 1. Before God ever said, let there be light, he knew who the redeemer was going to be and who the redeemed would be. And once again, this is given to us so that we can have great comfort in God our Father. Because he is so gracious to us, he has redeemed us in Jesus Christ. He has chosen us for the very foundation of the world. And through him, you have believed because of the resurrection. So the first, uh, set your hope on the reality of the second coming. Number two, be holy because God is holy. Number three, love one another. Verses 22 to 25. Peter is telling us we're to live rightly with God and we're to live rightly with one another. We are to love Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For Peter, love was not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It was not an erotic pleasure. It wasn't just shared coffee at church. No, love for Peter was righteous relationships. You remember the story of Peter. You remember how Peter disowned the Lord, acted as if he didn't even know him, denied him not once, twice, but three times. And after the resurrection, they're having some broiled fish right there uh, on the seashore, and Jesus is there. And Jesus says to Peter, let's go for a walk. And Peter said, alone? <laughs> Just the two of us? Don't you want to take an eyewitness with us, you know? I mean, what are you going to do here, Jesus? Jesus said, no, come on, let's walk. And what did Jesus ask Peter? Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Yeah, you, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs. On a second occasion, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I like you a whole lot. Well, then take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, yes, you know. Why you've asked me three times now? Yes, I, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. He asked three times, I think because Peter dis, disowned him, denied him three times, if anybody knows something about God's love, it has to be Peter, right? The forgiven failure. If anybody knows anything about the redemptive love of the Redeemer, it has to be this one named Peter. So Peter says that uh, we have been purified. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that sincere love, real love, genuine love, God's love is in you. Not just for God, but also for your brothers. Therefore, love one another deeply from the heart, from the core of who you are. The word purified is in the perfect tense, which simply means it's an action that took place in the past, but it still carries present implications. You are purified. It's kind of like saying you're redeemed, you are saved. It's an action that took place sometime in the past, but it still has present implications. In other words, the, the purification process of God never has a shelf life. It never gets stale, it never gets old, never becomes out of date. If you are saved, you are saved forever, for all time and eternity. 
Because your purification, your salvation, you were purified. Can you remember the moment when you called on, on God in Christ? Can you remember that moment when you said, I need you, I surrender unto you, and in that moment you were purified, you were saved? Do you remember that moment? Okay, a couple of us do. That's all right. Um, if you are in Christ, you have that moment in time, and that moment is behind you. It's in your past, yet that purification is still applicable today. You are just as much saved today as you ever have been in the past. You continue to be purified and saved. So you have purified yourselves. And, and how, how did you purify yourself? Obeying the truth. Obeying the truth of the gospel. The good news that though we are dead in our sins, God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. And, and while I don't want to break the burden of the, of the grammar and the language here, there is something to be said, don't you think, beloved? That there is some correlation between obedience and purity. That, that, that the pure ones are the obedient ones. And those who obey the word of truth, they reveal the purity that they have in Christ. There is a correlation, right? It's not that we earn our salvation. It's not that somehow through our obedience we become uh, even more pure. No, no. Uh, but, but there is a correlation there. That the pure ones, they reveal their purity through their obedience unto Christ. So he says that we've been purified because we obey the truth. We've been born again. How? Through the living, enduring word of God. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40, which Isaiah chapter 40 is a great passage of deliverance. Now, why is that important? Because these recipients of this letter, remember they're in the diaspora. They are scattered abroad. They're not the big cities, but the small cities. They're a country folk, right? And those country folk are suffering persecution at the hand of the Roman Empire, the Roman government. The, 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 the emperor had kicked them out of Rome, and they had been scattered all over the place. They were suffering. They were losing their jobs, their family, their possession, their property. They were suffering intensely simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And here Peter reminds them of Isaiah 40. Which Isaiah 40 is, is a passage that speaks about how the day's coming when God will rule the world. Theologians call it the theophany of Yahweh. It's not a democracy. God's rule is not a democracy. It's a theophany. Theos, God, rule. God's rule, um, and so there's coming a day when God will rule the world. Isaiah 40 speaks of that future event. And Peter picks up on a couple of verses there from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So everything in this world is like grass. All men, women, boys and girls, like, like grass. All the glory, all the glitter, all the shiny stuff in this world is like a flower. It's pretty for a while. And then what happens to those pretty flowers? They die, they perish, they fade. And here, uh, Peter is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, and he's reminding uh, the people of God in the Old Testament, and Peter's reminding the people of God in the New Testament, and I'm reminding you here in the 21st century, everything in this world, every body, every person, every glitz, every glamour, everything in this world, all the image of power and, and prestige, all of it, nothing more than grass that's here today, gone tomorrow, and a flower that's pretty right now, but it will not last forever. And the only thing that's enduring 
The only thing that's eternal, the only thing that's lasting is the word of God. It stands forever. What Peter's reminding the people is that in the midst of your suffering, set your gaze unto Christ. Just look up. Don't, don't get caught looking around at all the sinful, terrible scenarios of life. Just, just look up. Because the word of God and the God of the word, they are enduring. And God will always keep his promises. And so what he's saying is that this too shall pass. The pomp, the power of Rome is here today and gone tomorrow. Don't let Caesar get you down. Hey, listen, friend. America will pass. Don't let the glitz, the glamour, the power, the prestige, whether your person's in the White House or your person's not in the White House, doesn't matter. Because every person that's in the White House is a blade of grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. But what will last? The King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Set your gaze upon him. So because of that, we are called to love one another. We love God, we love each other. And we love each other genuinely, and we love each other uh, sincerely and from the heart. So once again, this morning I came across this phrase, there is no place to go if a person turns away from Christ. It's almost as if Peter is saying, listen, if you have to compare and contrast the loyalties of this world, uh, the loyalties of this world versus the loyalty that you have to God and his word, there is no comparison. Because the loyalty to God, that God's eternal. If you're loyal to money, you're loyal to the things of the world, you're loyal to earthly power, all that thing here today, gone tomorrow. You focus intently upon Christ. So then, uh, and then Peter says, this is what was preached to you. So then let me give you the fourth command. It's in verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 2. It is to crave Christ. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. He says to rid, which means, it means put off. It's the imagery of clothing. It's taking off something that's dirty. It's taking off malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, all the things of the flesh. Take it off. Rid yourself of that. And then he says that you are to be like newborn babies. Crave spiritual milk. Now, I've got to be honest with you. In other places in the New Testament, um, spiritual milk is seen in a negative connotation. Uh, someplace like Hebrews 5.12 or 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 3.1, the apostle Paul says, I gave you milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. There's always a negative implication, negative connotation. You, you can only take the milk. You couldn't have the, the good solid food. But in this case... The spiritual milk is not a negative metaphor, it's a positive metaphor. Here, Peter says, we are all like newborn children. That's not an indictment against your level of maturity. He's not saying you're just a baby. No, he's saying all of us are babies in Christ. I don't care how long you've been with Christ. I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you've been following the Lord for 87 years. According to Peter, you are still a baby in Christ. You're, you're, you're a Christian baby. You, you're like a newborn baby. And so this positive metaphor says um, that this pure spiritual milk is a good thing. It's a positive thing. We are to crave that spiritual milk. You've heard that statement, milk does a body good. That's exactly what Peter is saying. 
Peter says that we are to crave that spiritual milk. Now what is the milk that we are to crave? Before I answer that, let me ask you this. Um, have you ever heard a baby that's craving mama's milk? You ever heard a baby that's craving mama's milk? Of course you have. You can't stop hearing it. It's incessant, right? I mean, that baby is screaming at the top of his or her lungs. And if that baby could talk, what he's saying is, I want some of mama's milk. I mean, that's what he's saying. It's a, it's a craving. It's a one-track mind. It's a singular focus. That's what Peter's talking about. In the very same way, we are to crave Christ with a singular focus. It is incessant. We, we, we crave it. We hunger for it. We desire for it. And, 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 if, and, and we, we don't want anything else. We've got a one-track mind to Christ. That's who we are as the children of God. So we crave pure spiritual milk. And then that begs the question, so what is that pure spiritual milk? The word spiritual, is a, it's a weird word in the Greek language. It's only used one other place, and it's in Romans chapter 12, uh, when it talks about your spiritual act of worship. Be transformed by renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For this is your spiritual act of worship. Spiritual and the word pure means unadulterated, um, which I don't want to be too graphic, but this is just, um, it, it, it's the pure milk that comes from a mom to her baby. In the same way, it's, it's whatever the milk is, uh, in the divine sense, it is purely from God. It's unadulterated. It, 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 it's pure. It's from him. It's, it's spiritual in the sense that it, it has the same nature as God. So what is that pure, pure spiritual milk that we crave and that we long for? Well, some would say it's God's word. It's God's word. It's the word that is enduring and living and imperishable. It, it's the word that uh, has purified us. It, it is God's word. And certainly I think Peter has this in mind. But I don't know if he's saying that really what you need, you need to have a craving to read more of the Bible. Maybe he's saying that. You need to have a craving to hear more sermons. Maybe he's saying that. Because this pure milk could be not just the, the written word of God, but also the proclaimed word of God. But I think I know a lot of people that might read their Bible and hear a sermon, but not have this pure spiritual milk that he's talking about. He's not saying you just need to hear more or read more, even though I think all of us would have to admit we need to read more and hear, and hear more, right? Let me ask you this way. Do you read enough of the Bible? Raise your hand. Nobody's raising their hand. Do you hear enough sermons? You better not raise your hand. <laughs> so I, I know that we would say we need more of God's written word in our life and more of God's preached word in our life, but there's something more to this in its most basic essence, what Peter is saying is that we need to crave Christ more than anything else. Because a holy life is a transformed life. It's not that we just need to sit and soak. We need to be transformed so that our life looks like the word that's planted inside of us. So we don't just hear it, but we do it. Isn't that what James said? Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. So we hear God's word and we do it. We crave to be like Jesus. And why do we do this? Because we realize that God is not a subject to be studied. He's a banquet to be enjoyed. God is not a subject just to be studied. He is a banquet to be enjoyed. So he picks on Psalm 33. For in Psalm 33, we, are, we read, taste and see that the Lord is good. But Peter leaves out the word and see. He's just talking about taste, 
taste that the Lord is good. You have tasted that the Lord is good. You've experienced it. You have enjoyed it. It's not just something that you read. It's something that you have experienced in your life. You have tasted that Jesus is good. And, and there's a play on words between Christos, which is the word for good, and Christos, which is the word for Christ. So there's a play on words there that Christ is good. And you have tasted that Christ is good. And when you taste how good Jesus is, you want more of him. You can't get enough of him. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. Once you have some of Jesus, you want more of Jesus. That's what Peter's talking about. So this pure spiritual milk, yes, it's the written word. Yes, it's the preached word. It's also the incarnate word. Because you and I, Realize that God is not a subject to be studied, but a banquet to be enjoyed. We have tasted that the Lord is good. It's not enough for us to read about his goodness. It's something totally different to know his goodness. It's one thing to study his grace. It's another thing to experience his grace. It's one thing to consider his forgiveness. It's one thing to be granted his forgiveness. Peter says, if you have been born again, if you have new life in God, then that condition of your soul leads to four imperatives for your new life. That you and I are to set our hope on the reality of the second coming. We are to be holy because God is holy. We're to love one another as God has loved us. And ultimately, we are to crave Christ. How do you know if you're craving Christ? You've put off malice and deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander, and all the things of the flesh. I get to the end of this study tonight, and I just say, more of Jesus, please. Less of me, and more of thee. That's what I want. Is that your desire? Crave Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this passage of scripture and Lord help us to walk out with a desire to crave Christ more. Yes, you give us all the provisions that are needed, but we have a part to play. We got to make an intentional effort to set our mind on things above, set our heart on things above. So help us to do that, oh Lord. And as we walk, help us to think more about you and live out the gospel in a clearer way to a watching world. We've asked this in Jesus' name, amen.